From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, March 25th. Before we begin today's news, a note of warning. The topic we are about to explore includes descriptions of violence, which might not be suitable for all listeners. In 2018, a murder shocked a small Navajo community just south of Bluff. Federal agents arrested a suspect later that year. But since then, the victim's family has lived without closure and in fear. Justin Higginbottom reports from Mexican Water on the Navajo Nation. Rebecca Green is standing on a dirt road in front of her house. It's a clear day in this remote stretch of the Navajo Nation on the Utah and Arizona border. She describes this road as a vine, which a number of her family lives off. Today, she's waiting for her aunt, but it's the cars that she doesn't recognize that worry her. This past year, there was a pickup truck that went all the way up to my grandma's house and then just turned around and went back. There was a car that went up here and turned around and went back, and so it could be anybody, you know. So I am scared. I live with that scare of having to look over my shoulder wondering who's going up the road. I have that every day. It's been nearly four years since someone shot and killed their common-law husband. It happened just down the road. Although the FBI charged a suspect, she lives in fear of his family or his associates. So they may take it upon themselves to retaliate and do whatever. In our native belief, we believe that he has spiritual guidance with some medicine man on his end trying to witch us and trying to do harm on us that way, spiritually. Maybe they're coming up here, dropping stuff off on our land, and causing us harm that way. Green's birthday is approaching next month. It's a time of year that brings back painful memories. Her husband, Antonio Montoin, had a birthday a couple days after hers, and they were celebrating together on April 14th of 2018. They had just lost a cat and drove looking for it near their home. It was there she saw someone possibly dumping trash. That had been a problem before. So I took it upon myself to go and tell this person that was parked on the turn to leave because he was parked there. Everything in my head was telling me no, I should have listened. As we were going by the turn, Antonio, that was his name, was telling me, should we pull over and tell him to go? Everything in my head was telling me no, but I told him yes. Let's do it. I'm tired of these people on our property. I'm tired of hearing about it. Let's do it. Antonio, or Toby, got out to talk with the man. There was an argument. She says she couldn't hear what was said. She just sat in the car with her son, who was seven at the time. Then she says she saw the gun. His first shot was a warning shot up into the air. Going to the right, probably, I'm not too sure. But that got me scared to where I jumped out of the van. Like, I couldn't believe what just happened and why. What did he say to him, you know? What what did you say? I was waiting for him to come back in. What did he say? Did he say anything? What happened? I just waited for him to get in. It took forever, it seemed like. He got to the door. And out of nowhere, as it looks like he's going to get in or turn around or something, he falls. I didn't hear the gunshot. I didn't hear anything of him yelling to him or anything. Toby just falls right in the driver's doorway. It took me, 
probably five milliseconds to realize what happened. He was shot in the head. She says the suspect just stood there, holding his gun. She wondered if he would shoot her and her son next. And my son's in the car, and he's starting to scream, Daddy got shot! Daddy got shot! And I said, Yes, Riley, stay in the van! Riley's screaming, and I'm like, Riley, remember this number! And I'm yelling what I thought was the license plate number. Federal investigators eventually charged Perry Maryboy for the murder. Green believes it was him who killed her husband. Authorities detained Maryboy, and a trial date was set. Then COVID happened. Pre-trial detention was cut for suspects around the country. Jails were hotbeds for the virus. Maryboy is also Navajo, and that community was hit especially hard by the pandemic. Staying in jail could have been a death sentence for him, and until a trial, he's presumed innocent. Maryboy was released from jail in August of 2020. Curtis Yanito is the Mexican Water Chapter House president. So all of a sudden, this Perry Maryboy, you know, came up, issue came up, and they said, Perry Maryboy needs a new home over here. We got to build him a new house. I said, what? I thought he, was, he had a house in prison somewhere, you know? He goes, no, he's back over here, you know? What is he doing over here, you know? We don't need a person like that in our community, you know? People were scared of him. Yanito says that until he's convicted, Maryboy has rights to housing from the tribe. Still, some in the community weren't happy about it. And that's how it started. And then people start talking, say, you know, we don't need him here. You know, he needs to go back. He doesn't need these kind of services here and all so forth. Mary Boy lives in White Rock. It's a couple dozen tracked houses and a church. He's not allowed to leave his house without permission, and he wears a GPS tracker. One neighbor who helped identify Mary Boy to the FBI isn't comforted. And he is a little bit uncomfortable because I'm just an accuser just down the road now. A couple of blocks he lives from me. Couple of houses. I don't know what he might be thinking, but it has been uneasy. I've been a year and a half now. He doesn't so, want to give his name. He's had violent run-ins with Mary Boy in the past. He moved back from him. And he shot in the air. He shot at me. He about shot me, too. He pointed right, he's only about 10 feet away from me. Tried to scare me off, and he was drinking, and very drunk. So he told me to get out of there, and all kind of cussing word. So I took off in my Jeep, and he shot some more over my head. Back at Green's home, her aunt Nell Johnson finally arrives, her truck bumping down the sandy road. You know, we got more cautious of who's going across our yard or who's up on the hill, that kind of thing. Before, you see people hiking out there and say, oh, it's just somebody. Not anymore. Some of us track them. But we never had that. You, you wake up. The reality of what's really, what's out there, it's here. Perry Maryboy's brother is County Commissioner Kenneth Maryboy. Many I talk to in the community think this has given Perry special treatment. But his release isn't up to local politicians. It's a judge that ultimately decides where he will spend his time before trial. That decision is made depending on Perry Maryboy's chance of running and his danger to the community. After a while, Green's aunt figured her family was in this situation because the crime happened in Indian country. So, well, they just kill each other. They're just crazy Indians out there. That kind of attitude, you know? 
That's what I felt like finally when it was continued again. We finally come to that conclusion. It's just because of two people of the same nationality kill each other. It's no big deal. Here's Green again. And even now, like, I feel like I'm not doing enough to have the FBI put them away. I feel like I should be going crazy up there bothering them every day about everything in order to get my way. I don't know. I'm still... I'm, I'm managing every day. I, I break down crying on a daily basis about what I did and how I should have did it or what I could have done or wish I didn't. The jury trial is finally scheduled for May. Until then, Green and her family regularly drive past White Rock where Mary Boy lives. She wonders which house is his, and for the millionth time she thinks about that day nearly four years ago. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories about the Moab area. Team Rubicon is a veteran-led disaster relief and prevention organization. Their volunteers just spent time cutting fire fuels in Moab for the third year in a row. Doug McMurdo from the Times Independent has more. Operation Slick Rock uh, is not a code name for a military invasion. <laughs> it is, however, uh, Team Rubicon has a whole lot of veterans that work for it. Uh, they were back in the Moab area for the third year in a row, uh, reducing fuel loads along Pack and Mill Creeks, which uh, they've been coming out here uh, since the Cinema Court fire, mm -hmm. destroyed nine homes. Um, we don't want to have a repeat of that. So they come in. And um, it would take an army to come into Moab mm -hmm. and, and clear out the creeks where they're so overgrown. But they come in and they, they got the worst parts, the worst spots that we've got. And yeah. uh, it plays a big role because once fire gets a hold, it's, it's not going to give up until you know, it runs its course. So it's a, it's a really good thing they did. They slept out at the uh, the arena, inside the arena. They had their beds out there. Uh, I watched the county commission exchange some gifts with them, and they they all stretched. They did, got in this big circle, and they stretched before they uh, fired up the chainsaws and started cutting down some fuel. So good for them. It's a, it's a good thing. Uh, Karen Doran ridden. She's a big part of that, as you know, with Rim to Rim Restoration. It was uh, the Salvation Army. It was just a whole bunch of people coming into town and uh, doing a real good service for the community. It sounds like, you know, Team Rubicon has kind of taken, you know, a liking to Moab. <laughs> Their work does a lot for fire prevention. It absolutely does. Thinning out the fuels is the difference between having a manageable fire and a conflagration that did, you know, another cinema court. Right. So it, it was really good. Well, there's more in the Times Independent. Also, there are some photos um, I, I think that Sophia Fisher, reporter Sophia Fisher, must have taken on the front page as well, huh? Yes. Um, Sophia was out there. She actually uh, went out and met with them and photographed them while they were actually doing that, that work. Well, where else do you want to take us, Doug? Um, if it seems like tourist season started, it has. Arches closed a week early because of overcrowding, uh, a week earlier this year than they did last year. And last year, as you know, was a record-breaking right. uh, year for the park. So closing of the gate. Closing the gate because right. there's no parking spaces left. Okay. Um, hopefully that's going to be um, alleviated in a few days when they begin the timed entry. I think a lot of people have their fingers crossed, um, not only at the 
National Park Service, but locals and business, local business people. I think we we could all use a more manageable, not fewer tourist, but a more manageable load. So it's just not so crazy. We were talking just a few minutes ago before mm-hmm. the program that somebody had to wait uh, right. for three three light three cycles to, to make a left turn on Main Street. Uh, walking my dog has become suddenly hazardous. You know, you walk and you live downtown. Um, yeah. Take your life in your own hands to, <laughs> to jaywalk. It's like you can't even jaywalk anymore without fear. Now you are admitting to jaywalking. I know, <laughs> okay. I know. All right, no more jaywalking. So yes, you know, it does feel busier than this year. Sophia has an article about this. And uh, like you said at the top about Arches National Park closing its gates, it's going to be really interesting to see how the reservation system works the next few months. You know, we spend a lot of time I'm criticizing the government, but I believe that the National Park Service, specifically the the Arches people, they deserve a lot of credit because they have advertised the heck out of this program. I mean, there's nobody has any reason, any excuse whatsoever to not be aware that uh, it's a timed entry system now. So hats off to them. I think we are having sort of a changing tide with more parks doing it. You know, if I am going somewhere, I'll probably look up to see if a park has a reservation (laughs) instead of assuming that they don't. Right. Well, thanks, Doug. And um, in the Times Independent this week, there's a unique article about a local artist. Yes, uh, Pete Pimo Apicella. The headline is pretty funny because it's a quote from him. Choose a loo with a view. And Pimo, he, he was actually the Arches um, community artist in 2010. It's also my neighbor, disclosure. <laughs> um, however, I did not know this story was being written. Okay. Ashley Bunton wrote it. She's doing a series on what to do with a human solid waste that we, you know, is right. becoming a problem. Okay. So and, this is part of that series. And, yes. And this is the second in that series. And mm-hmm. Pimo is painting the inside of porta potties at Mineral Bottom Boat Ramp on the Green River. And he's painting endangered native fish to the Green and Colorado Rivers and, um, you know, the native birds. And he's even got photographs of these uh, critters inside the, the porta potties. Wow. And he is a very creative multimedia artist. And um, like all artists, uh, he's a little bit eccentric. When you read it, his quotes, they yeah. are the quotes of an eccentric. There's no doubt about it. But he's a lovable eccentric. So uh, that makes it really, really a, a fun read. So how did... Um get this gig of, you know, painting the inside of um, pit toilets. Well, it's a partnership with the BLM and a couple of other government agencies. And um, I don't know if there was a bid process. I'm not quite sure how mm-hmm. that happened, but sure. I do know he's a well-known artist. And uh, he got the gig to do these uh, these paintings. I think he was a little bit nervous. He didn't want to become known as um, a toilet painter. <laughs> but anybody who knows Pimo knows he's much more than that. Well, that's going to be certainly like a, a treat for people who, um, like Ashley d- said in her reporting, um, are going down the Green River by the Mineral Bottom Boat Ramp. It's going to be a nice surprise. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, finally, Doug, there's some a few stories on the inside of the paper that relate to housing yes, that I the, was the, hoping you could highlight. The, the city council, um, they're moving forward on their housing Uh, occupancy requirement. Uh, This is a new ordinance. It's the city's latest effort to do something about affordable housing, workforce housing, and they're going to require a percentage of units that every development has, every new development. If you do 50 houses, a percentage of those are going to have to be set aside for workforce housing. And what that percentage is, it could be as high as 33%. And it could be more than 33%. The council Mm -hmm. uh, isn't unified yet on just what that percentage should be. 
Um, 33%, that's obviously a third. That seems pretty sizable. And on page five, we have a story on this so-called bunkhouse housing. Okay, tell me about this. Okay, there are corporations coming in, they're buying up houses, and they're letting their employees live in these homes. Kudos, good for them. However, they're putting 10, 12 people Mm. in these three-bedroom, two-bath homes, and that's creating a traffic nightmare, a parking nightmare. Neighbors are upset. Uh, One of them is particularly egregious. So now they're looking, uh, the city council is on their radar, and they're looking at it. Um, what can they do to mitigate it? So you're saying there have been, you know, complaints in certain areas where this is occurring. Anyone from the city um, looking into this? Yes, the city is absolutely looking into that. And what they want to do is, um, it's all about definitions. What is a single family home? In most cases, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a family sure. home for a mom, a dad, three kids, 2.5 kids, whatever, uh, maybe a grandparent or two. But um, this you know, single family home is not built for a yeah. dozen people. This is this seems like it's going to be very hard to regulate because there's also situations where, you know, we have multiple families living in a house or, you know, you have people who aren't from the same family who are roommates right. <laughs> who are sharing a house. So you don't want to legislate out that scenario because that's a vi- viable way of living. Yeah. And I don't think that that's what they're interested in. That, that was a concern. Exactly what you said. Having roommates in Moab is probably a given. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a necessary yeah. thing for just about everybody. I, I know it's going to be emotional and I know a lot of people are like, they don't want the, the city to do anything based on the economy and how mm-hmm. hard it is to live here. There's no easy answers. There never is. Doug McMurdo, editor of the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Utah State University will soon celebrate their brand new campus in Moab. According to Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News, the building just south of town is the first net zero energy facility in the USU system. So um, on April 1st, Utah State University will hold a ribbon cutting for its new Moab campus. This campus has been in the works for a really long time. USU originally bought the land in 2012, but construction didn't start until November 2020. And then, of course, like it had all these pandemic delays and Mm -hmm. challenges. But on April 1st, it'll be opening and then students will be able to use it for the summer semester. So it's really exciting. USU has like a master plan of this campus, which shows a bunch of buildings and like mm-hmm. all this potential for growth. When I was talking to Leanna Etchberger, who's the associate vice president of the USU Moab campus, she said that they've really kind of dialed that in. And she said mostly USU Moab is here to serve the community. And she really sees this new building as a way for USU Moab to kind of get more involved in the community and also work with local school districts more um, to get more students involved in secondary education and kind of like make Moab into a place that has these like post-secondary options. Mm. So I think this new campus is really just meant to be um, like a space for the community. And it's also meant to be this like very welcoming and cozy space, um, according to Edgeberger. And I mean, the building is fantastic. It's LEED certified. It's going to be USU's first net zero energy building. Mm. Um, it's silver level LEED certified. It like utilizes solar power. It has ground source heating and cooling. Um, all the interior finishes are free of PV 
PVC, which is like plastic. And um, there are multiple water conservation measures. And it's like aligned on the solar path. So it's a super efficient building. So yeah, it's kind of both this like very green and sustainable place. And also it kind of marks a new era for USU Moab and what they're trying to become. So, you know, did Etchberger talk about, like, why this was important to be LEED certified and to be a net zero building? Like, this is just part of their mission? Yeah, it's part of USU's mission to slowly kind of transform all of their campuses Mm -hmm. into being more energy efficient and reaching these sustainability goals. Sure. Okay. And so there is a ribbon cutting coming up. So the ribbon cutting will be held on Friday, April 1st at 3.30. There will be a tour of the campus. And then there will also be a time capsule being buried, and the burial for the time capsule will be at 5 p.m. Um, but the ribbon cutting will also be available via live stream. Oh, nice. So the time capsule will be packed with community submissions um, approved by USU officials. Um, and the submissions are supposed to convey what Moabites are experiencing in 2022 and their hopes for the future. USC Moab has a brand new campus about to celebrate, you know, really high tech building or high focus on sustainability. Mm-hmm. What about programming? Does that mean that programming is going to change at the campus or are things staying like the same? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the new campus will allow USU Moab to expand its academics offerings um, pretty significantly. Um, the building has like new specialized facilities for fabrication and welding, um, health professions like nursing and pharmaceuticals. Um, they have a science teaching lab and a demonstration kitchen. Etchberger also mentioned that she really wants to grow the natural resources and recreation and hospitality programs mm-hmm. um, just kind of to add to this campus being like a place for the Moab community to learn. And obviously those are things that are really important to this place. Thank you, Ali. Where do you want to take us next? Um, What other articles do you want to highlight in the Moab Sun News? So um, another event that weekend um, running from Friday, April 1st to Sunday, April 3rd is Green River Rocks, um, which is the Green River Rock and Mineral Festival. And this has been postponed for quite some time, right? Yeah, so it's had a two-year hiatus, um, but this year it's back and the weekend will be full of geology lectures, guided field trips, um, rock hounding, and a rock and mineral pop-up market. You know, I did go to their first one um, and I went on this amazing tour Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the Hanksville Burpee Dinosaur Quarry. We Mm -hmm. went all the way to Hanksville. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the tours that they have? Yeah, so there will be six field trips on Saturday. Um, They're going to Jurassic Monument, exploring rock art in the Swell, and exploring rock art also in Sego Canyon. They're going to visit the Crustaceous Ash Disaster Mm. and um, go to the Mill Creek Dinosaur Track site and Fossil Point. And all the field trips are free, um, and they're all led by local experts. Um, And they're also like first come, first serve. So. When you go to the festival, you'll sign up for a field trip and then leave from there. And I talked to Summer Orr, who is an event coordinator who works for Epicenter um, in Green River. And she said that having field trips like this in and around Green River is really fantastic because Green River is often overlooked when people are going to southeast Utah. Um, They usually flock to like Moab or Mm -hmm. down to Lake Powell. Um, And so it's really amazing that Green River is able to have this festival where they can show people all the fantastic and amazing places like in and around that area.
Anything else to mention about uh, the Green River Rock and Mineral Festival? Yeah, so there will be three lectures throughout the weekend. So it'll kick off Friday evening with a lecture by Dr. Julia McHugh, who's a vertebrae um, paleontologist, and she works at Dinosaur Journey Museum in Fruita, mm-hmm. Colorado. And then on Saturday, Allison Mathis, who's a geologist based in Moab, will discuss local geology. And Steve Acerson, who's the president of the Utah Rock Art Research Association, um, will discuss rock art and conservation. Um, also in the Moab Sun News this week, I know you spoke to a pair of photographers. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so um, a couple weeks ago, there was an exhibit at the Hearth Space called Cowboy Stories, and it was these photos by local photographers that tell the stories of ranchers and bull riders in our region. So the exhibit is not available anymore, but I talked to the photographers kind of about their work and how they got started in photography. Um, And one of them is Ryan Lundbaum. He's a medically retired U.S. Marine, and he first picked up a camera in 2016 when he was trying to figure out how to assimilate back into Mm -hmm. the civilian world. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said that at this time, he struggles with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in the Marines. And so he was really trying to figure out just what could make him happy. Mm. And the camera was one of the first things that did. And so he said that it's really given him a second life and it's this new ability to understand the world. He has been taking photos of the Red family for years. Um, So the Red family is kind of this cornerstone in Moab's ranching um, culture. They've been around forever, and they have property kind of near the Needles District of Canyonlands National Park. Mm -hmm. And um, they, like, sold it to the Nature Conservancy. Um, And so a lot of people know of them. So Ryan first started taking photos of them because he was just friends with Aaron Red, Mm. um, who's a part of the family. And he said he just really loved that taking photos of people allows him to be like as close or as far away as he wants to be. Mm -hmm. And it also gives him this space to like just be really present with people. Mm -hmm. And so his photos are beautiful. They're like very intimate portraits of ranching. And it's kind of crazy to see them because it almost feels like you're like going back in time. Mm. But these photos were taken so recently. And I just think it's amazing that he's only been a photographer for, you know, like six years. But he has these fantastic stories that he can tell through his photos. What an interesting story. I mean, like in a way of relating to photography um, and having this medium that kind of separates you from people. But also, like you said, you have to be like very like in the moment. Right. You can't really be thinking about too many other things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like personally, like I think as a journalist, sometimes it's really easy to forget that photography can be like an art form because Mm -hmm. we use photos as just like a way to show Mm -hmm. that something is happening. But when you look at these cowboy stories photos, you really remember that this is an art form Mm -hmm. um, by Ryan and the other photographer who is also part of the exhibit named Victoria Dempster. And so Victoria worked as an art teacher in London for 20 years. Um, That's where she's from. And that really helped her develop a love of photography. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in 2017, she moved to Utah with her partner when she got married. And that was the first time that she'd ever seen a rodeo. And she said she was just astounded. (laughs) And as a photographer, the rodeo seemed like 
a really obvious place to take photos. And I love this quote. She said, it's got everything. Good looking dudes, dust, (laughs) floodlights, action, drama. And so her photos are also in black and white and they have this like heavy contrast. Um, And she also got just really close to her subjects. And so she photographed rodeos in Monticello um, and also in Fruta, Snowmass, and Carbondale in Colorado. And then she found the story of these two young bull riders um, named Devian and Dominic. And so these two boys are teenagers and they both wanted to grow up and be bull riders professionally, but they both ended up um, like injuring their legs. Mm. And so Devian, a 13 year old, broke his leg while bull riding, and 15 year old Dominic lost his leg mm. when he was 12. Um, so he rides bulls with a prosthetic leg. And so Victoria explored their stories in her photographs. Um, so you said that the photography exhibit, of course, is no longer up, but where can people go to like find these photos or find more of their work? Yeah, so the photos um, can be seen on Victoria Dempster's website. Her website is victoriadumpster.com backslash USA to see the cowboy photos. Um, And then Ryan's photos can be seen on his Instagram page, which is at the bearded kite with um, underscores between the words. Allison Harford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.